Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 81. This psalm was most likely written by the original Asaph and appears to have been produced for the Feast of Tabernacles. This festival commemorated the wilderness journey and on sabbatical years included a public reading of the entire law. And that certainly explains the particular emphases of this psalm. Asaph reflects upon the wilderness journey, and in particular, he draws attention to the refusal of that generation to listen to the word of God, with all the devastating consequences associated therewith. Willem van Gemmeren gives this psalm the title, If My People Would But Listen to Me. And it would be quite a challenge to think of a title that more accurately or succinctly expresses the substance of what we are about to read. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the ascription. To the choir master, according to the Gitteth of Asaph. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. The Feast of Tabernacles was known as the most joyful and festive of all of Israel's feasts. Kevin Howard and Marvin Rosenthal say here, The joy was twofold, for it commemorated God's past goodness and provision during their wilderness sojourn, And it commemorated God's present goodness and provision with the completion of the harvest, closed quote. The worship was loud and it was public. Everyone was involved. The mention of the tambourine indicates dancing. The tambourine was generally played by women and was generally accompanied by dancing. So this is corporate worship, inclusive worship, and I think you could argue corrective worship. It was worship with a point, and that point begins to be made in verses 4 and following. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. Now, stated simply, this psalm has two basic parts to it. There is a festal hymn in verses 1 to 5 that leads into an extended oracle of the Lord. But as straightforward as that is, there is some disagreement as to the precise seam between these two sections. Look at verse 5b. I hear a language I had not known. What does that mean? Several options have been offered over the years. Some see that as part of the divine oracle, meaning they think that these words should be understood as part of what God says in the second section of the psalm, not what Asaph says in the first section of the psalm. And of course, this is part of the challenge of translating Hebrew into English. In English, we would mark off dialogue with quotation marks, so we would know when one speaker's part ends and another speaker's part begins. But that wasn't done in ancient Hebrew. So we have to decide, where does Asaph's voice end and God's begin? 
If 5b is God speaking, then he is saying that as he surveyed the situation of his people in Egypt, he heard them speaking in a foreign way. That is, in a desperate and pleading way, which is not how you would expect the people of God to speak. Why should they be crying out from a situation of oppression? They're the children of God. That is a strange state of affairs that demands an explanation. So that could be it. But I think the argument is stronger in favor of understanding these as Asaph's words, as indeed the ESV publishers have done. You can see that in their placement of the quotation marks, which again, were not there in the original, but reflect the translation decisions made by the publisher. And in this case, I think made correctly. The ESV publishers understand Asaph as breaking up his hymn, as it were, in order to record the voice that came to him. Asaph is a prophet as well as being a psalmist. So by way of transition, he says, he heard the voice of God. And this is what it said. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. Remember, this psalm was written specifically for the Feast of Tabernacles. It was created to be sung and celebrated publicly. And there is no theme more worthy of public celebration than the theme of redemption. That is true in both the Old and New Testaments. John Calvin says here, As God has not only withdrawn our shoulders from a burden of brick, and not only removed our hands from the kilns, but has also redeemed us from the cruel and miserable tyranny of Satan, and drawn us from the depths of hell, the obligations under which we lie to him are of a much more strict and sacred kind than those under which he had brought his ancient people, closed quote. So we have even more to be thankful for, and we have an even greater obligation to express our gratitude in careful attention to God's word, which is the theme that the psalm now explores. Verse 7, In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. So God says, You called to me, and I rescued you. Not only did I rescue you, but I spoke to you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. Now, we assume that the secret place of thunder refers to the experiences of the people at Mount Sinai. It was certainly a place of thunder. And it was also, in a sense, a secret place in that most of the people had to stand far back. The elders were able to go up part of the way, but only Moses was able to go up all the way in order to hear what God said. It is interesting that the speaking at Sinai is presented as part of God's response to their plea for deliverance. But it fits with the overall argument of the psalm. The psalmist is saying that the word of God was the answer to their bondage as a people. It is rebellion and autonomy that gets us into trouble, but it is listening and obedience that positions us for blessing. But as always, faith and obedience must be tested before it is accredited by God. Thus, verse 7 ends with God saying, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. The waters of Meribah became synonymous with the testing of faith. Twice in that period of Israel's history, God tested the people at these waters. Once in Exodus 17, and then the second time, much later, in Numbers 20, verse 3. And on both occasions the people failed miserably. In this one little verse, 
we learn three things about God. He saves, he speaks, and he tests. And in verse 8, we learn that when we fail the test, God admonishes us. He says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Over the entire course of Holy Scripture, this is what God is looking for. He is looking for a people who tremble at his word. And do not for a second think that this is something that changes as we pass from the Old Testament to the New. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Jesus has no interest in nominal followers who refuse to take him at his word. Oh, Israel, if you would but listen to me. Verse 9. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Verses 9 and 10, of course, remind us of the opening words of the Ten Commandments. God is the God who saved us. Why then would we worship or honor any other? He is our Savior, and He is our provider. I love what Ernst Wilhelm Hengstenberg says here, explaining the phrase, open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. He renders it this way. I am rich, for all thy necessities, even for thy boldest wishes, closed quote. Faithfulness to God does not go unrewarded. J. Alec Machir says very usefully here, within the covenant, obedience brings blessing, closed quote. That is well and succinctly said. Verse 11, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. I'm not sure whether the King James Version is more accurate here, but it certainly is more impactful. The KJV renders verse 12, So I gave them up unto their own hearts' lust, and they walked in their own counsels. There is no judgment more horrifying than this, when God ceases to strive with sinners. Dear friend, do not assume that God will always call you back from madness. As the Apostle Paul makes plain in Romans 1, a time does come when God gives us over and we fall headlong into what we have desired and will hear no further word or counsel. No more dreadful sentence can be given than this. He has chosen his idols. Leave him alone. God have mercy. Verse 13, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him. Their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. A thoughtful review of Israel's history could yield no contrary conclusion. With the Lord, Israel was unbeatable. Without the Lord, they were nothing but bread for their enemies. As for the meaning of the closing phrase in the psalm about honey from the rock, there's been much speculation about that over the ages. Does that refer to Christ, or is it merely a poetic description of God's bountiful provision? 
John Calvin, again, is very helpful here. He says, the meaning simply is that the grace of God would have continued to flow in an unbroken and uniform course had it not been interrupted by the perverseness and wickedness of the people, closed quote. I think that is true, and it provides a fitting conclusion to the meaning and message of this festal psalm. The RMM Bible Reading Plan has us reading two psalms today, so keep your Bible open, if you have one with you, to Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The first interpretive issue to be decided here, obviously, is the identity of these gods mentioned in verse 1. The Hebrew word Elohim can be translated gods or God or heavenly counsel, but it also sometimes is used in a deferential sense to refer to human magistrates in the same way that we in the Commonwealth countries may still refer to our magistrates as your worship. The trick then is to figure out in what sense the word is being used here. Very few commentaries, and none of the ones that I have on my shelf, understand this as referring to actual gods, pagan deities, and the like. All of the commentaries that I have on the Psalms and the vast majority of those referenced in those commentaries understand this use of the word Elohim to refer to human beings. Now, in part, that is due to the fact that it just makes more sense of the Psalm as a whole. But then also, there is the significant fact that Jesus appears to have understood the word in that way when he referred to Psalm 82 in John 10. You will recall that the Jewish leaders did not appreciate Jesus referring to himself as the Son of God. And so Jesus said to them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? John 10, 34 to 36. So there, Jesus is clearly arguing from the lesser to the greater. He is saying, if there is a sense in which human judges may be referred to as small g gods because they are created in the image and likeness of God and because they are charged with rightly handling the word of God, then if that is appropriate, how much more then is it appropriate for me to apply that designation to myself? The word of God in the flesh. So, unless you're prepared to argue with Jesus, which is generally a very bad idea, I think we have to agree that the word gods in Psalm 82 refers to human beings. But which human beings? That question remains open to debate. There are two main options. The first one, and my survey of the literature would suggest that this is the majority opinion amongst conservative scholars, would be that this refers to human magistrates. So, Joseph A. Alexander, for example, says here, The idea is that as the judges were gods to other men, so God would be a judge to them. Close quote. Thus, this psalm is about how in the future every single human judge will have to stand before God, the ultimate judge, and give an account for how they have administered justice within the scope of their authority and responsibility. As I said, that's the majority view amongst conservative Christian scholars. The majority opinion among Jewish rabbis, however, was that this referred to the covenant community as a whole. And, of course, they would say the Old Testament 
covenant community as a whole. The rabbis typically understood this as a warning to Israel. God entrusted them with the law. They were supposed to be a light of law to the nations. And so God would judge them, every single one of them, in terms of how they lived that law and applied that law among the nations. D.A. Carson appears to hold this view as well, saying, This interpretation is strengthened when it is remembered that Israel is also called God's firstborn son, Exodus 4, 21-22, generating a typology which Jesus has already claimed to have fulfilled. Closed quote. So Carson is arguing that the psalm originally applied to Israel as a whole, Israel as God's son, and that it underscored their general failure to represent and image the justice of God on the earth, and that this line of typology was then picked up by Jesus and applied to himself as further justification for referring to himself as God's son. In John 10, then, Jesus is saying, I am calling myself the Son of God because you folks have done such a bad job of executing this aspect of your covenant mandate. Now, that is probably true. But I think that it is particularly true that it was the leaders of Israel that were most responsible for executing these legal functions. And so I think the correct application of this psalm is still, in a sense, to earthly magistrates. I think there's a sense in which the prophetic function of this psalm lands on Jesus, while the principial application lands on any person wielding temporal or judicial power. All right, so the scene is set in the heavens, in the heavenly courtroom, and human powers are being summoned before God to give an account for how they have wielded their power. Thus, combining all of these legitimate interpretations, we can imagine Jesus sitting on the throne and all Israel gathered before him to give an account with a particular focus on their tribal elders and judicial representatives, followed by a stream of human leaders, politicians, and magistrates from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. All earthly powers exercise their mandate under the careful scrutiny of Almighty God. That's the idea here. And in verses 2 to 4, we begin to hear what God expects from them. He says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. According to these verses, God expects all human powers, all magistrates generally, but of course, even more so Christian magistrates, God expects all human powers to give justice to the weak, to maintain the right of the afflicted, to rescue the needy, and to deliver the powerless from the hand of the wicked. That is the purview, as it were, of every earthly power. That is what they will have to give an answer for with respect to their civic function on Judgment Day. Now, if you're following along in the ESV, you will notice that a set of quotation marks encloses all of verses 2 to 4. Most commentators understand those verses as the speech of God. The speech of God appears then to resume in verse 6, which leaves us with verse 5. J. Alec Machir understands verse 5 as the voice of the witnesses at this trial. 
Some other commentators understand it as the voice of the psalmist interjecting himself into the vision. Now, you have to decide that for yourself. I side with much here, but we can still be friends if you think otherwise. Either way, this is what that voice says. Verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So this commenting voice does not think very highly of human magistrates in general. In general, they do not appear to be judging in accordance with God's word. And as a result, the foundations of the earth are shaken. Joseph Alexander says here, The denial or perversion of justice is described as disorganizing society. Closed quote. That seems to be the sense of it. In verses 6 to 7, we have God's sentence. I said, You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. These two verses have often been used by Christian leaders to help the faithful understand how they ought to relate to earthly powers. On the one hand, we should see the dignity with which God addresses them. But on the other hand, we should see that they are just men. And like men, like Adam, actually, the Hebrew says, they shall die. So there is a tension there. Martin Luther captures that tension very well. He says, Who will set himself against those on whom God bestows his own name? Whoever despises them despises at the same time the true magistrate, God, who speaks and judges in them and through them and calls their judgment his judgment. Close quote. But then Luther goes on to say, they, so the magistrates, they must understand that they are not placed over stocks and stones, nor over swine and dogs, but over the congregation of God. They must therefore be afraid of acting against God himself when they act unjustly, closed quote. So the people should be respectful and the judges should be fearful. That's Luther's counsel. And I think we would be wise to pay it heed. Our job is not to judge the judges. Our job is to submit to that which God ordains. Romans 13, 1-2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, closed quote. That seems pretty straightforward to me, but I would probably chafe at that passage were it not for the message contained in this passage, in this psalm. This passage promises that those leaders that are over me are under God. They will give an account to God for every decision and judgment that they render. I can live with that. And Christians are supposed to live with that. W.S. Plumer says here, because princes and rulers are under God's control and accountable to him, the righteous may be very calm and quiet respecting public affairs, even in times of distraction. 
closed quote. Verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Matthew Henry says here, There are two words with which we may comfort ourselves and one another in reference to the mismanagements of power among men. One is Revelation 19.6. Hallelujah! The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The other is Revelation 22, verse 20. Surely I come quickly. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 